Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Uh, we are talking to you today uh, historian Chad E. Pearson, who has written a book called Capitals Terrorists. I like that title. Nice and spicy, you know. Punchy. You you want to you wanna, uh, crack it open to see who these terrorists are. Uh, the subtitle is Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers in the Long 19th Century. And basically, he is talking about, you know, the, the, the people who enforce the social order during, you know, the... Post-Reconstruction. Yeah, yeah. For, from the American Revolution, sort of through slavery, through Reconstruction, and up to uh, kind of the New World Deal. One. Yeah. Um, and, you know... Uh, it just sort it sort of puts a lie to the to the idea that the United States was a kind of democratic society uh, in those days in which people had like things like freedom of association. You know, the 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 like workers could bond uh, uh, come together to like bargain for better working conditions. That shit got you know massive state violence especially no, during the right. gilded age after the end of reconstruction and it goes back and forth like the these things uh were not always the same but you know especially from the end of reconstruction in 1877 up through like to the to the great depression basically you you just have like brutal brutal violence. violent coercion yeah. against yeah. um people trying to exercise their constitutional rights frankly well, and, and all of the efforts, the emancipatory efforts from, uh, you know, the formerly enslaved to, uh, anarchists and socialists to workers, the terrorists described in the stories told, uh, are really, I mean, just illuminating about the explicit violent strategies and this is interesting because we get into how you know we typically think of the of the KKK or of all kinds of uh terrible uh racial violence as you know being something that the kind of those racists did uh just because they had hate in their heart or something but you see here how really the the business leaders and like the the business and legal um structures the judges, the lawyers, the, the, the people who funded railroad development, um, they themselves were, were leading the charge and, and quite literally in these different organizations, um, that did this extra legal violence that complemented state repression in many, many instances. But from kidnappings to whippings to murder to, uh, you know, a, a kind of ethnic cleansing, like literally expelling uh, people to uh, dealing with agitators or subversives, all in order to, as you say, secure the kind of hegemonic political and economic order, um, union busting and whippings and lynchings and all these things were of a piece. And, and it's a really interesting conversation that delves into just how those things were connected and just what kind of um, terrorists were in charge. And it's not the kind of, uh, in the same way that today we, we, we forget that the Richard Spencers of the world kind of uh, aren't the poor working class, right? They kind from, they come from some privilege. Um, this kind of unmasks, if you will, not just the KKK members, but all kinds of terrorists uh, and their enablers and their, um, 
you know, social location and social and political and economic interests, right? Yes, absolutely. And that's something I think, you know, we explore a lot. The, the, the fact that uh, American racism today often is just irrational hatred, um, ju- just, just, just people venting their spleen, but the origin of it uh, was the need to control the labor of black people in the South, that's right. slaves. Yeah. And that's, that's the right. root of it. And that's why it's so strong in this country um, and why it's been sort of the axis of American politics for 250 years. But, um, you know, Chad... Or the it's funny how much of a the, the 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 that that name has taken on like a certain a certain uh, resonance over the last few years of internet meme bullshit. Um, but he he tell he'll tell us a lot more about this sort of thing. So, um, quick uh, couple of housekeeping items. You know, this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. And so if you uh, subscribe at the $10 a month tier, you'll get a free digital subscription to the magazine and support the work that we do there. Got a new uh, print episode, uh, print issue, not a print episode, print <laughs> issue coming out uh, with Excellent. an article by me about my trip to the Faroe Islands. Yes. Uh, good stuff. And there's lots of other good stuff. A whole and this ten dollar, th- this ten dollar um, patron level will also get you a heavily discounted print subscription if you so choose, right? That's right. Uh, Five dollars a month, you'll get access to all of our bonus episodes. We've got over a hundred of those, I think, now. Um, but otherwise, you can just enjoy the free stuff. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, uh, follow us on Mastodon because Twitter <laughs> might be not long for this world. But stay in touch. Otherwise, yeah, uh, let's get to our, our interview with Professor Pearson right now. Maybe you could you could tell us about uh, the the period you are talking about here. You know, so so this is sort of defined um, a bit of American history that you are looking at, and um, you're you're looking at people who have a certain function: capitals, terrorists. Uh, so, so like great, great title, by the way, with a great subtitle, certainly arresting. I feel like this could make a good airport book. You know, did you mean for that to be a pun? Did you mean for the arresting? Does that, was that a Freudian slip? Arresting or kidnapping. Yeah. The, uh, but the audience is real captive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, (laughs) so when are we talking about and like, give us a sort of just like general sketch, not too long about like who these people are you're talking about who are these terrorists like what function are they serving in society certainly so i look at the period from roughly after the american civil war to about world war one um i'm not i don't slavishly follow that that time frame throughout the whole thing but that's generally uh the the time frame i'm i'm looking at and so i'm looking at uh, this this period that uh historians often refer to as a second industrial revolution a time of um much uh, industry. Uh, the United States is sort of in the vanguard of this second industrial revolution, becomes a, a dominant economic actor. And so I look at the um, the way in which ordinary people responded to uh, this this economic the, the, these economic forces, and more importantly, the way that elites, employers, and um, 
uh, landowners uh, responded to labor unrest. So rather than focus primarily on on working class people, I'm looking at the folks who sought to make the lives of ordinary people miserable. And so uh, in, in doing that, I, I look at a number of organizations, including the first Ku Klux Klan. Uh, I look at um, uh, law and order leagues, primarily in the, the Midwest. I look at um, stock growers associations. I look at various employers associations. And then I look at citizens alliances. And all of these organizations were led by elites, and they were all interested in addressing what uh, folks broadly called the labor problem or the labor question. And so in looking at how they address that, I'm looking at a lot of thuggery. So I look at whippings. I look at kidnappings. I look at at, uh, caging. I look at shooting at people. I look at hangings. Uh, I call these hard forms of repression or hard forms of terrorism. And then I look at what we might call soft forms of repression or soft forms of of terrorism, like book burnings and blacklistings, firings. And then I look at what I call a hybrid form, which um, I really just kind of focus on one, and that is what we call the drive-out campaign. So in these cases, you'd have um, an outside agitator, maybe a Republican teacher in the South during Reconstruction or an anarchist or socialist in the Midwest during the 1880s or 1890s. And you'd have various elites, the Klan in the South, the Law and Order leagues and the citizens alliances in the north who would approach these people maybe go to their houses and say you better get out of here by the time the sun comes up and uh, if they left voluntarily it was a bloodless effort there's no issue but if they didn't then maybe there'd be some coercion involved and so at in the best cases these drive out campaigns involve four steps isolate intimidate expel and blacklist Right. Isolate, intimidate, expel, and blacklist. So, um, so yeah, so I'm looking at a lot of thugs. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, well, who knew that the PMC actually ran the KKK, you know? <laughs> yes, that, that I, 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 I wanted you to drill down, you know, if maybe we could sort of proceed semi-chronologically here, because I feel like people have a sort of... Uh, I don't know, a, a limited view of the KKK and like popular media and so on. It's like you have your guys in your white hoods and like Martin Luther King's trying to get voting rights or something and like they're, you know, burning crosses on people's lawns or something like that. But in especially the context of the Civil War and in the 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 the, the post-Civil War period in Reconstruction, um, it like like the Civil War, to a certain approximation, is about labor. Who's going to control the labor of the slaves? And the Reconstruction period is also about that. And so the KKK is kind of a, a, like an adjunct of business. You call it a, a employer's association, I think. Um, and so that, that I think is kind of foreign to the, to the popular conception. It's like, I think that the way that people think about the KKK uh now is that it's just fairly racist that you have just like white people running out and they're just like killing black people just because they hate black people and there's definitely an element of that that is very prominent in how it works but it was also about the control of the labor of the black people and like suppressing their uh labor you know their 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 any sort of organizing they might try to do so can you talk about that a little bit 
Right, right. And I, I appreciate the question. I think you, you nailed it very well about regarding what I'm trying to convey here. Uh, so, so a couple points here. Number one, there were multiple clans throughout U.S. history, right? So we have mm-hmm. the, the clan that I'm, I'm primarily interested in or exclusively interested in is this, is the first clan, right? That is the one that emerged uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. You have a second clan in the era of World War One in the 1920s. And then you have the Civil Rights Era clan and you have clan chapters uh, to this day, of course. And so my argument is not that all of these Klansmen were acted as as employers um, uh, in, in, a, in an effort to uh, control black labor. But I do think that was the primary goal of the first Klan. And so in making that case, what um, what we must do is we must look at who called the shots, who was in the leadership. And overwhelmingly, the leaders were elite or they were downwardly mobile elite. Right. They lost a tremendous amount in the wake of the Civil War, uh, but they were still plantation owners. They still wanted to uh, control labor. And so the Klan uh, played a part in in assisting them in controlling that labor. Uh, many of these folks got their own hands dirty, meaning that they participated in various Klan attacks. So what do I mean by Klan attacks? I mean um, attacking uh, former slaves who would run away from the plantations or from the homes and bring them back and whip them and say, no, no, you're going to come here. You're going to labor for me. Right. And I, I mention a few cases in the book. Um, I also mention the, uh, the, the relationship between Klansmen and these outside agitators, what they called carpetbaggers, these northern educators who would come to the south and uh, – uh, teach in these black schoolhouses, and uh, these folks were very um, problematic from the vantage point of Klansmen. They wanted to push them out. So we see a number of drive-out campaigns uh, involving those folks. And so the, the 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 big question is, what were their interests? Right? What were their interests? They wanted to maintain their position as plantation owners, and they fought whatever challenges confronted them, whether they be internal or external challenges. Okay? And in making this case, I want to stress that we need to understand the way racism was exploitative, right? not just about hate. Civil rights groups talk a lot about hate, hate, hate. They didn't hate docile, subordinate, efficient laborers, right? They were yeah. nice to them. They probably didn't like them, but that's and, and, the source well, of their wealth. You even write about uh, one of the capital uh, capitalist terrorists who actually had a very positive view, right, of black Americans who would be kind of enforcers uh, against, right, uh, labor and, and who would kind of uh, fit the, the model of what they were looking for in terms of suppressing, right, those who would seek to rise up from below. Right. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. There are black elites, Right. There are black elites who serve in this sort of middle position and seek to work with Klansmen and the the the, the black masses, the proletarian uh, uh, black population and say, hey, 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 you know, don't bother us. They're going to go. They're going to work. You know, this is not to say that they, too, didn't experience racism. But I think it's important that we understand when we use, when we talk about white supremacy, we talk about racism. We need to kind of drill down and, and contextualize it better. You know, um, right. at the same time, I'm not denying that. Uh, uh, you know, we can certainly point to examples of Klansmen beating and killing black folks. But why? Because right. they can. What's the function? Right, exactly. They're too prone to criminality, uh, and so whipping and even killing, you know, did two things essentially. Right? It it um, 
disciplined the, the so-called violator and it sent a message to others, right? It sent a message to others. So it, it served yeah. as a labor control, um, you know, uh, it helped with labor control. Yeah. This is so helpful. I, I think, oh, Ryan, did you want to jump in? Well, yeah, I was just to say that, like, like you, you have people who are who are killed. I mean, you know, the 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 example, you know, in the the nineteen fifties, like in the sixties, like Medgar Evers and whatnot, people who are murdered, you know, not specifically because like they asked for more wages or whatever, but because they were trying to obtain more like status and rights for themselves, and so like that, like the 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 example. You know, just to just say like that, that thing stretches throughout the whole sort of Jim Crow period where it's like anybody who steps out of line, labor or otherwise, it's all about like maintaining this subordinate class of people. And one of the primary, not the not the only function, but one of the primary uh, objectives of that is controlling the work power the labor power of that population to keep it as cheap as possible and as absolutely you know just docile as possible and obtaining it through violence right i think that's brilliantly put Uh, you know what i ask my students i say you know if you look at powerful white folks throughout you know the nation whether we're talking about the reconstruction period we're talking about you know world war one or you know even into the 1960s what do these people want black folks to do shut up and work yeah Shut up and work and take it. That's basically it. You know, it sounds crass. It is crass, uh, but it was crass. And, and they want and they want their women to shut up and, and have babies and raise the kids and do what they're told. Right. Like like there's there's a, a pattern here. And and I think it, it's so easy to forget the function of uh, violence because of how. Look, obviously, it does come with hate. And obviously, there can be impetuous, spontaneous acts of violence. But I think what you're highlighting is that is somewhat secondary to the strategic rationale. And that explains the type of violence. That's, so whippings, for example, you talk about they're, they're both public and the scars are so visible that the, the, the function there is as a deterrent to, to intimidate and to scare. And, and, and that's part of the reason that that particular form of violence is deployed, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, to, to send a message uh, to, um, to, to, again, you know, maintain that, uh, that, that labor docility. Is the secrecy of, say, the KKK, is that a function of the fact that the elites were the ones that were very often running the show and and high up in the organization and the various different – so so that they could – you know, so that the organization is not transparent in terms of who's pulling the strings? Or what what do you think the different reasons for for the kind of uh, secrecy aspect were? Well, you know, some of the um, the memoirs of former Klansmen talk about how the secrecy was itself, the, the the white robes was intimidating, right? And so, uh, so I think there's sort of this works on two levels. One, you know, they want to disguise themselves uh, from from accountability, but there also there's something you know very um, fearful about you know putting on these robes and and uh, you know the, the the many historians talk about the Klan as you know these are the um, the ghosts of the Confederacy, right? And and that. Uh, you know, there's there's all these sort of rituals uh, involved in in this sort of thuggery. Yeah, certainly. Um, a, a question I had, sort of reading through this book. So, so you have this period, one of the darker periods in American history. You know, post Reconstruction to you know World War One. Uh, how how do you think this like? interacts with the perception and or the reality of the United States as a democratic country. 
um, you, 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 you mention you, you write a bit about Joseph Bradley, who is a Supreme Court justice during this period. And, you know, to, to what extent do you think was, was, uh, like, you know, up to sort of the New Deal, uh, in the, in the 1930s, was American democracy just a total fraud? You know, where, where like the, you, you had like vast chunks of the population that not only were sort of disenfranchised, but were living under a sort of like terror kind of quasi dictatorship, you know, just, just, to, you know, I mean, to, to where like you step outside of your door and you just sort of put a toe wrong and you're going to be strung up, you know, on a, on a tree. The, the, like that, that was, the sort of living like almost in like Stalinist Russia or something like just a terrible, terrible place to, to live with no, no freedom, no, none of the liberal, uh, uh, constitutional rights that are spelled out in the, you know, the constitution and the bill of rights, like all that is just thrown out the window. If you're like a black person living in Mississippi in like 1890 to, you know, 19, uh, uh, 20s. So, so, can you speak to that, like, like how the how that sort of uh, interacted with the, the 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 reality and the perception of America as a democratic country? Right. I guess it it depends on on the the specific question you ask. So if if we're talking about a you know Jim Crow Mississippi, certainly uh, we can't call this much of a of a democracy, right? I mean, it's just you know disenfranchisement laws, the the casual you know um, uh, racism, uh, extreme cases. You have lynchings, that kind of thing. Um, if you are you know maybe living in the Northeast, uh, you know white person, even an immigrant, you know life is probably uh, you know a bit better for you. Uh, the book itself is by nature very critical. And it's looking at, you know, sort of some of the, the worst episodes. So I don't want to think I don't want to say that my book is a substitute for, you know, um, a, a general history of this time. Right. Because there are, you know, uh, you know, basic freedoms. You know, you do have some gains. You know, workers do win some strikes. You do have legislation occasionally that was, you know. Some you know favorable uh, to, to to ordinary people you know on questions like child labor and and uh, you have your anti Pinkerton stuff going on, um, but you know w- when you when you ask the question about you know the relationship between sort of bosses and workers in almost any circumstance you know the, the workplaces were dictatorships right there's no you know way around that and and uh, unions made things better oftentimes when they were able to build solidarity and and establish decent contracts and whatnot but um but but i think in most cases you know um in the context of of strikes yes some workers were able or many workers were able to secure benefits from their bosses but um the most militant ones were um you know uh faced the wrath of 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 capital and state forces and and a tremendous amount of repression so hard i'm not i don't want to say my book is you know let's let's you know um, reject all this other scholarship, but it's an element. It's it's part of the story that um, I I don't think historians have have traditionally yeah. grappled with as much. Certainly, you know, when I talk about this stuff, a lot of people don't know about it, or if they do, they you know kind of might have a vague sense of it. But um, but yeah, so it's it it complicates, but I I wouldn't say it replaces um, the 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 main 
mainstream narrative. It strikes me, Chad, that it's really important uh, and under-discussed, though, because the story that we're talking about and you just spoke to is a story of uh, revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries, of class struggle. Uh, And and there are victories that get instantiated legally on both sides. And there are victories that are outside of the realm of electoral politics and outside the realm of law uh, with victories on both sides. And you know, our, our friend, the historian Harvey Kay, likes to talk about how uh, going as far back as you want in our history, you can draw upon the revolutionaries, the radicals, uh, the leftists, the, the oppressed who fought for freedom and, and create craft a narrative about what it means to be American uh, that, that draws on that. And I, I think what you're highlighting is kind of the, 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 uh, the shadow of that, which is something I haven't thought of as much because obviously as much as we know about the violence of the reactionary, uh, oppressors in our history, I think there's little attention given to the, not just the strategy, but the psychology and the narratives you point out that also inspire the violence, the organizing, the solidarity, if you will, right, of ordinary uh, r- racist and even working class people who align with and are pressured by and cajoled and led by not just racist, but but the elites who control capital. And, and I think that maybe you could talk a bit about about that, the inspiration you say from like the, the second uh, seminal uh, war and and going back to the antebellum period, the, there are principles, if you will, and, and there are reasons that the rhetoric used talks about the best citizens, right? And 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 these these leaders were off, often seen as as the you know the most respected moral men of the time and so forth. So could you talk a bit about about all that? Sure, sure. I think it's great. You know, one comment I I, I need to make is that um, so much of what I read, I I encounter historians who use the passive voice. So, for example, wages were low. Strike breakers were brought in, and, and so the question is, who are, who were these people, right? And you want to know, you know, who these mistakes were. were made. Mistakes <laughs> were made, precisely, precisely. So I want to do that, but but yeah. So so what I want to do is I really want to sort of give agency uh, to uh, uh, to members of the ruling class, and I'm I'm unapologetic in in using the phrase ruling class. I know a lot of liberals don't like that, but um, I think it's okay. Not a lot of liberals listen to our podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Okay, so we're golden. We're golden. Um, but uh, but yeah. So so. Part of part of the, the 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 story is about what I call the narrative creators, and uh, and to use words like the best citizens, right? To talk about the great heroic deeds, and to be fair, right? We sh- must give credit where credit is due, right? They they launched the the. Um, the the you know all these factories and uh, had patents you know these are these are smart people these they're involved in all sorts of you know the transportation revolution all this stuff but there's again this this sort of dark side right and so um, so what they do is they uh, they they put out I mean they have they have access to 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 um, information dissemination right they're disseminating information they're 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 powerful in that regard. And the stories they tell are, you know, one of, you know, the, you know, heroic uh, folks who, who, um, uh, you know, uh, in the case of Florida, you know, established uh, the, you know, the, 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 the state and wiped out the, the Native Americans and, and um, uh, built all this infrastructure. And, uh, and, and the folks who are, who narrate that story are involved in busting unions in, uh, you know, in, in, in 1901 during this, this cigar worker strike, right? And so a number of these people were authors. They were journalists they were um you know editors of uh, editors editors and owners of newspapers and so they were able to disseminate this information and so uh you know i think i'm not original in 
talking about what, you know, Mark said, the ruling ideas are the, you know, the ideas of the ruling class, right? And, and so uh, they were able to colonize the minds of many. How many? I don't know, but, uh, but plenty, I think. Was it McKay that even made a hero out of a scab? Like even the scabs are heroes? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think you're, yeah, Owen Worcester, the the novelist. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but McKay, yeah, McKay did, uh, you know. Kidnappings. Uh, kidnap- yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, uh, I don't think many people know about that Florida kidnapping. Yeah, yeah. Well, d- well, tell that story then. I mean, since we brought it up, like, like, <laughs> certainly, because because I think you're correct to say most people have not heard of it. But wouldn't you agree, though, that this is kind of an important period, an important event in history? Oh, absolutely. We don't know yes. about it. We don't know about it. So, so basically, what happened is there's this massive cigar worker strike in uh, in um, Tampa, Florida, and other historians have written about this. I'm not I'm not original in talking about it, but I. I still think it's it hasn't really gotten the attention it deserves. In any event, this massive cigar worker strike led by a sort of an anarchist union, La Resistencia, uh, maybe Cuban Ameri- Cuban immigrants and Italian immigrants and Afro-Cubans, a, a huge uh, union. And they shut down production, uh, cigar production in Tampa, uh, about 5,000 of them. And uh, in the wake of this, the Citizens Committee, right, very benign sounding employers association, um, uh, got together about a hundred of them, and they went into the leaders, thirteen leaders of the cigar workers unions, they, their homes, and they kidnapped them. They kidnapped them, um, and then they the next day they put them on a boat and they brought them to Honduras and they left them there, and then they came back. And this event excited business people, organized employers all over the nation. They were thrilled by this. They said, this is, this is the solution to the labor problem. You know, <laughs> We regret it's illegal, but they were wrong in saying that because the, the U.S. district attorney went down. These folks in Honduras eventually made it back. They uh, uh, appealed to the McKinley administration. The district attorney in um, Florida – uh, scoped it out. He too was a businessman. He was, you know, hanging out a bunch with the uh, citizens committee members, and then interviewing some of the unionists. And he said, "No, I didn't see anything wrong. Nothing illegal here." And easy as that. You know, the, the parallels today are, are phenomenal because. I, I, you know, for those that are, are kind of struck by how the MAGA crowd, for example, who think positively about the January 6th, uh, you know, terrorist, uh, uprising, if you will, um, you know, this is the same crowd that loves law and order and you write about law and order and that rhetoric, right? And so, so it seems like a paradox that these vigilantes are, are the ones who care most about law and order, but there's many ways that that goes, uh, very well together in their minds, right? And in action. Right, right. It, it it certainly is a paradox, right? It's vigilantes broke the law to uphold the law, right? It's it's it's. Uh, <laughs> we had to destroy the village to save it. Precisely, it's that same logic, right? It's that same logic. So, so yeah, no, I mean they um, they meaning the the organized employers active in these citizens alliances were absolutely inspired by by events like the uh, Tampa kidnapping, and then they they do it two years later. They do it in Colorado. They don't they don't kidnap people and bring them outside of the country, but they do expel them. And uh, and and the language is this is law and order and the cops, the National Guard, they're on the side of the employer vigilantes. That's right. 
right? Well, well I, it's a good thing that we've solved that problem, <laughs> that the cops no longer instinctively right? side with the fascist property owners and small businesses. <laughs> and and racist. Do you remember Ryan in Philadelphia during the, the you know summer of 2020, the George Floyd uprisings? It wasn't just in Philadelphia, but I remember specifically in Philadelphia, uh, all the kind of racist good citizens who came out to counter protest with their bats, right? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the, the cops were harassing, imprisoning, beating on the actual protesters who were rising up. But but the, the white counter protesters, they were shaking hands with and being buddies with. And this has a long tradition, doesn't it? Right. Like, yes. The, the, the a guy, kind of, a guy the, I know who worked for uh, public radio here, he got the the shit beaten out of him by a bunch of these, you know, fascist militants and the cops didn't do anything um, at the time. Uh, I, th- I think he you know he would they they ended up in court later but it was you know it was just you know that this was not too long after the police beat up like a drexel student the the, the joey baloney uh ppd <laughs> yeah. officer just like beating the crap out of you know guy who was and that strikes me as almost a direct line historically from you know just just like the 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 union organizers and black people who are sassing the the police are like looking at a white woman you know in the south too like that tradition just stretching forward to like oh you how dare you how dare you like sass a police now and say that we shouldn't kill people for no reason uh that's just kind of you know a legacy that we're stuck with it seems like reading your book it's very it's it's like uh, we live in this now <laughs> we're sort of coming back to this sort of situation what, what do they say the past doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes it rhymes like yeah yeah uh, I, i'm curious of uh, the i remember uh these vigilantes in philadelphia was it, it was in south philadelphia uh, yeah early? Well, the north also like Kensington and Fishtown and uh, like the the north uh, northeast. Were these yeah. suburbanites or were they were they from the city proper? Do you know? I think they were from the city. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah. Well, I, I mean, to tie off the contemporary discussion, it was just you know, it's like you have these group like sort of reactionary enclaves even though philadelphia is overwhelmingly a democratic city uh, i think in in our particular congressional district joe biden did better than any other district in the country he got 93 percent of the vote that's just a sort of how things how things have played out but i wanted i wanted to turn back to so you asked us before we started recording you know who is our favorite capitals terrorist <laughs> uh and and the one that struck out most to me is this uh owen wister okay okay a guy because he like me he wrote takes he was a journalist <laughs> an author you know a philadelphian who, Yes, exactly. And and so and he basically went with Emperor Palpatine to the dark side and they were like, here, here's a shitload of money to just like beat down the working class. And he's like, yes, give me give me the money. I'll take the money to. And so this raises a number of questions about, you know, uh the the role of writers, propagandists and so on. But like, could, could you tell the story of this guy? Where did he come from? You know, aside from Philadelphia, like his social context and and how effective was this type of guy, uh, the the writer, the the agitator uh, um, in terms of like political communication in 
in in beating down the working class. So he, Owen Worcester, was uh, born in Philadelphia. He, was, he lived in Philadelphia. I, I think he was born in Philadelphia. He ended up going to Harvard. He was uh, a couple Great years one. younger than uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and Roosevelt was there as well, and they became friends. Theodore Roosevelt, of course, the the, the future president, and um, he was um, uh, also got a law degree. Uh, but he didn't. He didn't uh, study. Uh, he didn't practice law. Uh, he became a writer, and he wrote for a number of popular magazines like Harper's, uh, Saturday Evening Post, I believe, and um, wrote um, uh, essays uh, denouncing labor unrest. Um, I think one of his first ones was about the Homestead uh, confrontation in 1892, where he talked about how wonderful the National Guard were and, and breaking this thing down. Um, uh, later, uh, he wrote. Uh, his most famous book, one that defined the Western genre of fiction, and it's called The Virginian. Uh, and this is, you know, probably the most, the iconic uh, novel about uh, this, the iconic uh, Western uh, novel. And uh, in it, um, it's loosely based on the, uh, the Johnson County War. Now, the Johnson County War broke out in 1892. It involved these um, the Wyoming Stock Growers Association's vigilante raid against so-called rustlers in Johnson County. These folks were from Cheyenne. They went in, they killed a few folks, and um, then the, the community in Johnson County rose up against them. Uh, Benjamin Harrison and the governor of uh, Wyoming protected them, uh, and they got the best legal defense, and they ended never ended up going to trial. Uh, and so that was a public relations disaster for Wyoming. Ordinary people, including a growing populist movement, were uh, appalled by by this miscarriage of justice. And uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, they were widely they, the stock growers, these very powerful, often Eastern-born men who go to the uh, to Wyoming and Montana and build these, um, you know, these, they're these cattle empires. Uh, they they were uh, very very unpopular, and so um, I believe, and I, I'm not alone in this, that the Virginian, the famous novel written by Owen Wooster, uh, served as a, an important public relations service for. The elite cattlemen who beat down, who killed these these folks, and and uh, stirred up all this this controversy. Um, and so, in the book, uh, the the main character's name is Virgin the Virginian. He's this sort of you know he's this cowboy, but he's very deferential, and um, you know really respects private property. Is not a rustler himself. And at the end, he kills this rustler, and this is sort of the climactic moment in in the book. And so it's a real kind of reactionary story about the individualistic cowboy working closely with these prominent Western landowners and um, taking on taking on the rustlers. Now, fast forward to 1907, and C.W. Post of Post Serial, a leader of this anti this national anti union group, right, called the Citizens Industrial Association of America, hires Owen Worcester as well as a number of other people to be on that organization's public relations committee and to do work on behalf of the anti-labor union open shop movement. So here you have the world's – one of the world's most important – well, certainly, I, I would – I don't think it's, it's very debatable. The most important novelist, the, the inventor of the Western genre of um, literature, serving – in this public relations capacity for the leading anti-labor union group, right? And so, and so, what I talk about is how his justifications for violence 
in this book find expression in reality when you look at some of these union-busting activities staged by members of the Cheyenne Citizens Alliance, some of whom were veterans from the from the Johnson County War, some of whom busted heads or wanted to, you know, they had a 70-person kill list. They wanted to slaughter a bunch of people in Johnson County, and uh, they're back um, back in leadership position. They got uh, coverage from this uh, this novelist. And not only that, he also wrote about, um, about the South. He wrote this white supremacist novel called um, uh, uh, Lady Baltimore, which was a, a very popular book as well. Super racist, right? He's, he, he compares African-Americans to apes. Uh, he says, you know, why do we want to teach these people? It centers around this Charlestonian family just after Recon- just after the Civil War. And he sympathizes with with them clearly in this, this novel. And in both The Virginian and Lady Baltimore, he talks about the necessity of using vigilante violence. He says we can use the law or popular justice. And popular justice really means elite repression. Mm-hmm. So to have him as a as a yeah to have him working for the leading anti-union uh, group was uh, was was qu- quite an accomplishment. For that it's like the, the the J.K. Rowling of his day. Is that a fair comparison? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well put. Especially in how she has turned into just like a virulent, you know, reactionary transphobe. Right. Like, like the liberation struggle of of our time. In some ways, I mean, labor is still important, but but she has become and has turned her writing into like propaganda for conservative like causes. Right, well, but right. I think we should we should talk about the parallels. And, and you mentioned uh, early on, especially about intersectionality and, and how this is, in fact, a kind of uh, a work that uh, takes that seriously, because uh, there's a reason now and then that the enemies were people of color. The enemies were um, the working class, but also uh, anarchists, socialists, uh, and, and now today and educators of anti-racism. So today you've got the critical race theory stuff, right? You, you've got – right? And of course, you, you've got the, the fear of uh, trans people in the bathroom or, or reading a, you know, a drag show uh, story to kids. At the same time that that you have also Trump talking about Antifa, 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 right? And 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 everyone's a, a communist. And so, could you link together some of the parallels you see in the strategies? Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I talk a little bit about um, January sixth and uh, looking at the class position of these people and, and what they wanted. I mean, that was not a an anti labor movement per se, but I think it's safe to to assume that these people hated. Uh, uh, anarchists and socialists, just like those in the late 19th and early 20th century, did. Uh, they hated, you know, uh, didn't like anti-racist uh, 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 folks, and um, you know, so you you see those those parallels. And you know, very broadly, uh, both sets of people believe that you can get what you want through using violence, right? That you know, that's sort of one of the the lowest common denominators, I guess. But you know, I'm careful not to, you know, uh, I, I think one of the key differences is we don't have as many labor, you know, uh, struggles right, today, right, but, but, right. but a fair number of, of union organizing. That's for sure. Well, and the, the vehicular uh, terrorism, right, that we've seen. Uh, I didn't realize that between 2020 and 2021, there were a People killed uh, by by cars in, a, in a, is that right? I don't know if they incidents? were killed. I think they were hit. Hundred incidents. Hundred yes, people yeah. hit hit by by angry uh, reactionaries trying to run over activists. Right. Right. Uh, 
and but there's a connection between that and then some of the laws that reactionary lawmakers uh, have tried to pass or have passed to protect those people, right? So like that we still have the, the cops, the judges, the lawyers, the enablers. Uh, the enablers collaborating with the right. vigilantes, right? Exactly, exactly. Yes, and I really wanted to get into that, and I, I thought it was, you know, um, that worked well because, I mean, infamously, we have the Heather Heyer case, right? I mean, she didn't have enablers there, but you do have governors, you know, from Florida and, and Oklahoma seeking to give cover to the folks who who weaponize their cars, bash their cars in, into people. And it's, Heather it's, Heyer was killed in the uh, when right? a when a Nazi terrorist like drove into a crowd of people at the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally, right? Just to just to give the context there. Certainly in 2017. That's right. Um, thank you for the context. And so, but this this has been going on a, a fair amount of time in uh, in the context of labor struggles. Uh, I mentioned in 1989 a big uh, communications workers of America strike, uh, telecom strike, and um, uh, a scab killed uh, a, a chief st- a steward um, during that strike in, in uh, uh, upstate New York, uh, Jerry Horgan, uh, and 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 he died. And I don't believe anything happened to her legally. But uh, there's a long tradition of wearing red on Thursdays to to memorialize his life um, since then. So and 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 there's a case. Uh, there have been some cases at uh, Warrior Met, the Warrior Met strike down in Alabama, of um, uh, managers and scabs uh, weaponizing their cars against workers. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they didn't have they didn't have cars. Uh, they didn't do it, as far as I know, back at the turn of the century. Their cars weren't very commonplace, but. Uh, so today we have different media options for the elites to communicate through, but even ordinary reactionary forces, they have their 4chan, they have their different enclaves. Um, and somehow like the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world get funded, their defense gets funded, they get they become celebrities. Um, and then you have Trump at rallies even saying ahead of time, um, I will pay for your expenses if you, you know, basically beat somebody up on behalf of MAGA or whatever, right? Uh, what do you see today that reminds you of some of these case studies in terms of the kind of the collaboration between elites and, and ordinary reactionary forces? Right. Well, there's, you know, um, these are these are shadowy. There are these shadowy uh, think tanks and and uh, organizations that uh, that that might fund these things. Um, you know, it would be interesting to know more about the funding and uh, behind say the oath keepers or uh the proud boys right um these folks you know i actually live right near where the leader of the oath keepers and the leader of the proud boys they got arrested like not far from where i live right i'm i'm wow. in the belly of the beast uh but these are you know the, these are mcmansion you know they live in mcmansions these are not um you know poor poor folks right. um right uh, they're, right they're, you know, just so, like Richard Spencer, there. You know, precisely. Yeah, and he's from Dallas too. So I, or you yeah. know, he, he. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm surrounded by these people. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think I lived in, uh, or I taught at, at Collin College in Collin County, and I think more uh, people were arrested in Collin County um, from January 6th than almost anywhere else. Uh, I, I could be wrong on that, but it, it's, it's a big number. What, what's the parallel? Wasn't there? Um, remind me of the case in the book where you're talking about. Uh, 
when, oh, I think it was uh, Ryan's favorite, uh, Amos T. Ackerman and Grant going after the KKK, that the actual people who, who kind of um, were punished, served time or convicted or whatnot, um, weren't the, the wealthy and powerful, uh, even though they were in charge. And similarly, in January 6th here, so far, the people being held, held accountable are not the wealthy and the powerful, right? Right. So- and, and just think about, you know, what happened to, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, you know, he was not a very successful Nathan Bedford Forrest, the the the, the leader of, of 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 or a leader of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, he was um, a downwardly mobile guy, but he did invest in in railroads. Not especially successful, but he did have over a hundred um, uh, convict labor. You know, uh, uh, free laborers on yeah. his uh, right. yeah, yeah. You know, at the end of his life, you know, about like hundred over hundred of them. Um, uh, John B. Gordon, who was uh, a leader of the Klan in Georgia, becomes a U.S. senator. Uh, right. Um, this guy, N.F. Thompson, I write about, um, was active in, in uh, commercial real estate. And uh, I don't believe he was he was ever arrested. And so there were, I'm sure, some, you know, some some big, big wigs who uh, faced some time in, in uh, the federal prison in Albany, New York. But um, but I think, you know, we we're talking about, you know, not under you know, a few thousand um, tops and the clan, it's, it's hard to get membership numbers. It's impossible to get clear ones, but, you know, I see estimates there, are, you know, 400,000 members or something, you know, so it's a real drop in the bucket, you know, I've, so let me see, like, like a, a question that occurs to me here is that, you know, you, you have this political uh, movement that takes shape after the civil war, which is, you know, sort of attempting to subordinate, like specifically the black working class, but also the entire working class. And it doesn't work for a while. Like during the reconstruction period, you have political democracy in the South up through the corrupt bargain of 1876, 77. What, you know, This is always, you know, a little bit of a weird question for historians, but like, do you think that 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 could have persisted? Suppose that that Grant had run for another term in 1876 and won and, you know, persisted in in his, you know, sort of fixation on people should be allowed to vote. Um, If we'd been able to you know, persist with the reconstruction for another 10, 20 years to like really cement it in place. Uh, do you think that's a possibility? Would that, would that have changed or do you think it was, it was just, uh, it was just a matter of time for, uh, multiracial democracy in the South? You know, it's, it's hard to answer. I would probably focus on the Krunkshack uh, Supreme Court decision of uh, 1876, because what that essentially did was it said that uh, the violence inflicted on uh, African-Americans um, was was more or less OK, provided that uh, or it was a state. It was a local matter, provided that it was unleashed by individuals and not by the state. And so we know that there's, yeah. you know, close connection between state and individuals, but there's plausible deniability as well. And so, um, you know, when when um, Bradley made that ruling, two rulings really, uh, in the wake of the um, Colfax massacre, I think. Uh, what was the Colfax massacre? Yeah, Tell us about it. I'm sorry. 1873, you have um, uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, uh 
both claiming that they won in this election in Louisiana. And uh, of course, uh, the, the African-American population supported the Republican candidate. And um, what ended up happening is you have this militia, this vigilante militia that attacked this courthouse, Colfax courthouse uh, on on East. 1873, and they just slaughtered at least 62 people. It was a mass murder. And so in the wake of that, um, which, by the way, historian Eric Forner said is the single worst case of terrorism in all of uh, during the entire Reconstruction period. In the wake of that, you have this Supreme Court case, uh, which ultimately uh, is uh, leads to Krunkshack. Krunkshack was one of the uh, white vigilantes who unleashed this horrific terror on these people, and um, and they they got off. Is the um, and can, can you talk about the Enforcement Act, the KKK Act, and and like the Fourteenth Amendment, and how? The, the law there could have gone otherwise like what what what's what would have the, the leftist approach have been legally right um you know so okay so the 14th amendment is about uh, equal rights um uh, irrespective of of race and the enforcement acts were about um clamping down on on the clan and other uh vigilantes so that's that's the context and and, and basically what the Krunkshack decision did was it narrowed, I guess you could say, the, sort of the, the definition of those those rules. Now, I, I'm not a lawyer. It's, I, I was, you know, I, I want to choose my words carefully, but I, I think that captures the the essence, um, basically. And so yeah. what it did was it sort of sent a message, that ruling, the, the, the first ruling um, in uh, 1874, and then the Supreme Court ruling basically uh, gave immunity uh, to uh, these these white terrorists. Now, the Klan at that time officially is mostly dissolved, but then you have these white leagues emerge. And these white leagues feel emboldened by Bradley's uh, decision, the first one, and and perhaps and I'm sure after the Krunkshack decision in 1876. So it's it's open season basically uh, there. So um, is that more important than the uh, the compromise of 18 was 1876, 1877 when, when you know uh, uh, we, we see the, the yeah, can you talk about that for uh, for people who don't know what what went down there yes yeah, so <laughs> uh, it was a, a Tilden and uh, and Hayes uh, uh, election and uh, the 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 Republicans uh, agreed to allow to withdraw troops uh, if um, uh, Hayes could become a president essentially and so a lot of historians look at 1877 as the the end of of reconstruction Um some historians debate that, but uh, but yeah, so it's almost like a perfect storm with that that compromise of um, in, in 1877, the Krunkshack decision, 1876, uh, and then shortly thereafter, of course, we'll see the rise of of Jim Crow laws and and uh, more lynchings and and uh, and in a Southern economy um, that benefited the ruling class, right? Um, you know, more dynamic so-called New South economy. These uh, one one thing you talk about in the book, like. To, at, at considerable length is the citizens alliances and i had really not heard about this very much at all can you explain you know what these things were and what their sort of sort of like ideological political function was in terms of like 
bringing in, you know, significant numbers of people to this business class perspective. You know, you think if you're like a Marxist, you're like the working class is going to be the giant majority of the population. But when we're talking about brass tax in terms of political contestation in, you know, the United States of the 19th century and the early 20th century, suddenly like the forces are somewhat even you have like mass mass movements of people like lots and lots of people who are on like oh rich people don't have enough money the taxes are too high you know so like what's that about right right so um so framing and uh, rhetoric are very important here so what we see happen is is i explore all these employer vigilante organizations in the late 19th century. And then we get into the 20th century. Well, what can we say about the early 20th century? This is a so-called progressive era when you have all these reform efforts going on, a lot of you know middle-class women, um, uh, academics, they're talking about the problems of monopolies, they're talking about the problems of child labor. And uh, employers who hate unions, Hated them then, hate them today. Uh, cap, you know, seek to um, uh, to 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 capitalize on this this climate of reform. And so, what we see in the early 20th century are fewer the, the fewer law and order leagues, or fewer uh, self-identified vigilantes, and more citizens' alliances. Right, a citizen. Right, that takes the attention away from the class interests. We're all citizens, right? We're all citizens. So yeah. language becomes very important. And in these citizens' alliances, you see folks who were active in these earlier thuggish employer, you know, anti-union groups. So there are there are members of the Klan, there are members of the Western vigilantes from the 1860s, there are members of the Law and Order Leagues, members of the uh, Wyoming Stockgrowers Association, and uh, you know, a whole bunch of them. And so. They put together um, savvy public relations. I had mentioned earlier about Owen Worcester working for them, uh, and they use language like open shop, right? Open shop. What sounds better, open or closed shop? Yes. Now, for your listeners. Right to work, Chad. Right to work sounds amazing. Precisely. Right to work. Exactly. That must be like a job guarantee, right? Is that exactly. That is? Exactly. So in the, in the early 20th century, you see employers and their allies – using very savvy public relations to frame labor management issues in ways that ultimately serve their interests. So we're not talking about you know the ruling class versus the working class or, or business versus labor. We're talking about the right of the free worker to, to, to work in an open shop as opposed to being some slave to the union, right? Free worker, right to work, open shop. Right? An open shop for your listeners is a workplace where you don't have to be a member of a union to work. And employers, the spokespersons here, talked about their inclusive hiring and firing policies. But in practice, they wanted non-union workers. Right? But open shop. They can they can Clint, this sounds good. I asked my students, what sounds better? Open or closed shop? Easy. Right. And, and this and, is yeah. Go ahead. No, and on, on top of that, you have a fair amount of flag waving, right? Right. Yeah. Right? You, you connect. You know, the patriotism, patriotism. Uh Absolutely. Coupled with a moral panic also. Right. Right. Absolutely. With a moral panic and and the idea that, uh, you know, these these unions are the tyrannical party. They're the ones who are oppressing you. It's not it's not your employer. Yeah, it's not. It's it's uh, it's somehow, you know, the the uh, the 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 big big labor is stealing your rights. I. (laughs) 
I mean, this is something I, I sort of asked about it before, but uh, maybe something you could talk about because I feel like it's highly relevant today. The extent to which uh, these business and the lackeys of business, the operatives of business relied on just rank coercion, like just straight up illiberal violence uh, uh threats you know we all think we all like to think that we're in a society where we're we're all individual republican citizens and we're sort of engaged in dialogue and then we you know we vote and we have you know that's how we sort of orchestrate our policy but you know you uh, elaborate just innumerable uh, instances in which it was just people just being beaten, just just like clubbed down. Like, oh, you want a thing? Fuck you! Like, like we're just gonna <laughs> just just beat, like knock your teeth out, or literally kill you and kidnap you. Right, um, and you get away with it. Yes. Right. Oh, not only and, that, they're the good guys that are doing it. Right. That's that. They're the they're the civic leaders and. Yes, yeah, spe- speak to that in, uh, I mean, I don't know if you necessarily, maybe don't need to like tie it to the current moment, but like how, how was it back then, you know, uh, to, to be like, if you're a union organizer, uh, what was it like to face down that type of thing? Well, I, I can imagine it was enormously um, challenging. I guess it depends on exactly what context. I don't want to insist that you know all these workers lost because there are some triumphant tales here, including yes. uh, with respect to this guy, Jay West Goodwin, um, who uh, was one of the leading organizers of the Citizens Alliance. He ultimately succumbed. He was a, a newspaper owner. And finally, in 1907, he, he gave in. Uh, so pressure and solidarity uh, can can work. But uh, in, in the most dramatic confrontational cases, uh, the the forces against labor were often enormous, right? We're talking about uh, public-private coalitions of 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 thuggery, right? We're talking about uh, cops, sometimes national guardsmen, sometimes federal troops, Pinkertons, uh, other private security uh, agencies, and so it was. Uh, it was very tough going. But despite that, again, it's not. Um, it's not a story of everybody always getting beat down. Uh, I want to try to make sense of power relations and not lose sight that um, that there are some wins here and there. But morale really matters. I mean, part of what you're showing is that w- when people lose, sometimes it's just a matter of uh, they, they didn't have the numbers or it wasn't going to ever, you know, that particular battle wasn't going to be won. But sometimes it's just so demoralizing um, to see the alliance between, you know, <laughs> vigilantes and the legal order. Uh, but also, like, I think it matters if you think you can win and some of these tactics are designed to make you feel like it's not going to happen or that you should be scared to try. And I think there's something for the left today uh, in that, in, in the, I mean, what is a bully, but someone who wants to seem tougher than he is, right? What, 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 what is intimidation? What, what are all these t- kind of tactics, but a show of force that is actually more exaggerated than what's really there? Because you, you don't actually want the full fight. You want to, you want to nip it in the bud, right? So, there may be lessons for the left there a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I always go back to solidarity and militancy uh, as as key. I'm certainly not original in in making that case, but that seems to be what really worked in the 1930s, right? We have to go beyond uh, the the periodization in my book to to find yeah. some some real breakthroughs. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think the left should 
should look at that. And I think, you know, um, maybe I'm going to be provocative here, but, you know, maybe more on the way of, of grassroots organizing and less uh, with respect to electoral politics, you know? So, yeah, absolutely. Well, that that's a question I wanted to, to, to bring up actually that, that how much does a, you mentioned in, in your book that uh, having Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, in the presidency may it was it was a difference in terms of how much state coercion was going to be available to capitals terrorists. Uh, so, so like, do you do you think the the best you know strategy is sort of both and thing? You know, where you try to get your guy, you know, who maybe isn't sort of like Biden, you know, you might say it's not like a labor guy per se, but he's not a like virulent, hateful enemy of you. And he'll sort of like grudgingly accept stuff rather than send the troops in, you know, like how much does that matter? Do you think, you know, um, it's it's hard to say. I, I think that, you know, thinking about the present moment, I think that politicians should come to the working class or organizations of the working class as opposed to, you know, unions and working class sort of begging politicians to, you know, uh, to side with them, right? I think that we need to show, you know, easier said than done, need to show force and then folks will possibly come around. Um, now, in the case of, of Roosevelt, I um, – I think he was very much aligned with the open shop movement. Um, what he did, you're absolutely right in that he didn't send in the federal troops in the midst of this massive um, coal strike in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania. But he did um, promote the open shop principle. He did call or his commission did call for more cops. Uh, and anybody in the context of, of these strikes or at least workers understood the role of the police. I, I don't think that we can say the police are ever neutral in the context. Maybe there are exceptions, maybe elected, you know, sheriffs might be somewhat sympathetic at, at moments, but in general, I think it's fair to say that they are, um, you know, are, are part of the, uh, this coalition of capitals terrorists, right. Um, to be provocative. So, yeah, um, absolutely. you know, I mean, Roosevelt, um, Roosevelt, uh, talked a good game occasionally, but ultimately he was very much an open shop guy. And in fact, um, after his, uh, uh, when he was out of the presidency, C.W. Post, the same guy who uh, hired Owen Wooster, um, asked Roosevelt to be a leader of an anti-union group that would mobilize um, uh, anti-union workers. Uh, Roosevelt wrote a nice letter in response saying no, but he really, he wish he hopes the group um, does well and he wishes all the best and all of that. So um, they loved Roosevelt, you know, the, the union busting scumbags loved Roosevelt. Interesting. You know, Chad, yeah. I, I have a, a last question for you because uh, I can't help but uh, think about the, the lessons for today and, uh, and you're being provocative already. So I, I might ask you to be provocative again. Um, I, I'm thinking in part about how the different kinds of violence and the different kinds of uh, alliances between private actors and state actors differed on the context historically and the needs of the time, right? Um, and I'm thinking today – like the bullpens, right? Sometimes you need to cage people. I'm thinking, right? And I'm thinking about how the rise of mass incarceration and then the formalized kidnapping of ICE, right? In, ter- in terms of what they're up to. Um, who are today's capital terrorists? And, and what, what should we most be cons- What tactics, strategy should we most be aware of today, do you think? Um, I, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I really like how you put that because, yes, I see ICE. Um, this is, of course, institutionalized, right? There is institutionalized. Um, 
kidnapping, right? Mass incarceration. This is, you know, a, a formal, right? The United States is known for its, uh, uh, its, its, its uh, imprisoned population, right? But what is it? Five um, percent uh, of the world's population. Twenty five percent. Twenty five percent. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm somewhat optimistic in that we do see protests against both of these things. I think in terms of of scholarship, there's some great works on on mass incarceration. People and and politicians are, are coming around. I don't want to be overly optimistic. You know, I think what Biden still wants more cops. Um, but, uh, you know, I think um, going to continue to hammer home these points, you know, um, uh, the the union organizing today is pretty exciting, but I think it's going to have it's going to need to escalate. Uh, Amazon and and Starbucks especially have no, they have not recognized any unions, right? There, there's no. Yeah. So Bezos and Schultz, you're identifying the terrorists. We want to. We want a list. We want a most wanted list, baby. Most wanted list. The question <laughs> is. The question is. Will they come out with baseball bats and attack us? Yeah. I think. I think their cops will do it. Their private security. They did That's hire right. the Pinkertons. That's right. They did. They the do. Pinkertons still exist. People don't know this. Some maybe the Pinkertons still aren't they like housed in Ann Arbor or something? Like in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's right. That's yes. right. I just I was just lo- looking that up. Yeah, yeah. It's it was wild. It was wild. Yeah, yeah. So so you know things are that we we see continuity up to the present. Arguably, I would say I, I I would suspect that that who wins that fight will depend to some degree at least on who is president uh, after twenty twenty four. Um, you know, who will be able to command state of authority? Uh, but you know, it's an open question. Chad Pearson, uh, the book is called Capitals Terrace. I have a copy of it right here in my hands right now. It's, it's, it's good stuff. Uh, I, I, subtitle, I really Ryan, enjoyed... always for, you always forget the subtitle. It's a great subtitle. Klansmen, lawmen, and employers in the long 19th century. It is an unusually good subtitle. I say it's like a lot of subtitles feel like tacked on. You know, it's like, oh, we have to have a subtitle because that's just the standard. Like, unless you're Thomas <laughs> Piketty, you, you have to have a subtitle. Like, no, this like one's they good. Straight up told me that when I wrote my book. But no, this one is good and it's spicy. So, like, like this is not boring, like, academic glurge. Like like this this you know you're talking murder kidnapping <laughs> beatings no, lynching this I mean, this book needs yeah the trigger warnings yeah yeah right. <laughs> hey hey did did you see um did you see my mention of of safe spaces in it <laughs> on page one seventy five on page one seventy five I talk about a safe space for terrorists <laughs> <laughs> they will be uncomfortable right Bezos Bezos will be shaken in exactly yeah. exactly yeah well I'm, I'm really I'm really honored um to. To, to be on this this show, and I'm so thankful for your uh, questions and, and um, uh, encouraging comments. Well, thanks for coming thank on. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening, everybody. We will uh, see you in the next episode.